When the body of Allison Highwolf was found alone in a motel room in February 2015, her family suspected foul play, yet her manner of death was categorized as undetermined. According to an article written in 2021 by the New York Times, in Montana, Native Americans, mostly young women, accounted for one-third of the 110 active missing persons case at the end of 2019. In Bighorn County, home of the Northern Cheyenne Reservation, it leads the state for the number of missing people reported per capita. There are still no answers in Allison's case. This is the story of Allison Highwolf. Hey guys, this is Ash. This is Shiashi. This is Maggie, and you're listening to We Are Resilient. Shiashi thought I was in Yellowstone last week, but I was not. Um, so that was that was in part my inspiration for today's story. So after covering all these stories and us always like finding um, a lot of these stories, which seems like in the same area, a lot of them come out of Montana, specifically Bighorn County, which is close to Yellowstone. Jokingly, I told my boyfriend that we better be careful while we're in Yellowstone or I might go missing. But then when I looked at the statistics for the state of Montana, that comment actually became a relatively true concern. So according to the CDC, Native Americans make up 20 26% of the missing in Montana but only 6.7% of the state's population. While I was researching, I came across an article that was from the Montana Department of Justice. It was from some members of the Montana's Attorney General's Office, and they did an in-depth review of missing persons within the state. And they did this in February of 2020, which is more recent than a lot of the Department of Justice reports nationwide. So they did this with the intent to help locate active missing persons. The report highlighted several key points, which I want to read to you. So nearly 81% of individuals reported missing in 2017 through 2019 were under the age of 18. Most missing person reports represent people who have been reported missing more than once. Missing juvenile data indicates a strong correlation between childhood trauma and children ages 0 through 17 who were reported missing. Bighorn County had nearly double the number of missing persons than the next highest county. And nearly half of the deaths that were autopsied, ages 19 of 42, were deemed accidental. Only 17% were deemed homicides conclusively. So this is just in the state of Montana. Those are staggering numbers. And especially to be so young. Yeah. Um, so the screenshot I sent you today from Nicole Wagon, um, her daughter Trinity Wagon went missing and it's in Bighorn County. So what's crazy is a lot of these Bighorn County cases are young people. A lot of the cases even that we've covered are in Bighorn County or are around this area, which is really scary because like Osh was saying, that's a lot for, I mean, 81% of reported missing for just two years were under the age of 18. That's scary. When we talk about Bighorn County, I can't help but think of Selena Not Afraid. You know, we covered her story early on in this podcast, but I remember we had talked about the fact that a major interstate runs through Bighorn County and about the potential of human trafficking. And I'll be honest, on these statistics alone that you just gave us, I mean, how could we possibly think it's anything else? Yeah. And so what's crazy is there's an article that I need to send it to you guys. It actually 
is um, an article about the issues in Bighorn County. And it was written by the New York Times, which I had just found when I researched this one. But it basically was talking about sex trafficking in that area, in MMIW cases that are all unsolved or suspicious. Um, but it was really like trying to bring light to that. And Bighorn County kind of responded on a few things, but they were really vague in how they answered. But, you know, what's crazy to me is We've talked about this before. And, you know, I think one of the first cases we did was around the Yellowstone area because Josh, didn't know where it was. It's crazy because... Okay, I just caught that. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I thought you were talking about Yellowstone, the TV show, and not the actual park. I do know where Yellowstone is. I need to put it on a (laughs) t-shirt. But where areas where it feels like there's a lot of tourism, it feels like, you know, it sex trafficking is a real concern. God, this also makes me think about the situation of the girl who was trafficked at that Dallas Mavericks game. Like, you can barely find media coverage on that. And I would have assumed, considering it really, like, how it played out in real time, you know, from her going missing to being found and how she was found, that it would have garnered more reaction than it did. And luckily, they found her in two days. Otherwise, she could have been in Mexico or across the country or overseas. Like, who knows? But why isn't it talked about more? I don't get it. Like, where's the outrage? So, you know why I think people don't talk about it enough is because it doesn't happen to people that aren't in precarious situations, usually. Right. And was the girl that was abducted, was she, what what ethnicity was she? Was she white? Was she, what was she? I don't know that it said because she was just like going to the bathroom. She was with her family. You know, it wasn't someone who was into drugs or something like that. You know, they actually like put it out there that it happened. Yeah, they put it out there that it happened, but it was just like this small blip in the news cycle that day and it got filtered out on our news feed. And that's just a really good point you made. And that's just an assumption, but it feels like, you know, that's kind of why. The same reason why a lot of MMIW cases aren't talked about, because they feel like they put themselves into these situations, which isn't true. So this case is a little similar to kind of what we're talking about, where it feels like people don't take things as seriously. So after learning those statistics and any statistics regarding MMIW, I always just think about how tragic it is. In the state of Montana, it feels like they're at least trying to take a deep dive into why these numbers are so high for the state. And it sounds like they're actually dedicating resources to help find some sort of solutions. So we can be hopeful that at least, you know, some people are looking into the cause and trying to figure out why this is happening. So when looking at cases near the Yellowstone National Park, unfortunately, I found a lot of cases because the Blackfeet, Cheyenne, Comanche, Crow, and Creek tribes all have native lands within driving distance of the National Park. Yellowstone National Park covers a lot of area. I don't know how many acres it is, but there's five entrances to the national park, which are in all different cities. So like Shashi was saying, you know, I think personally sex trafficking has to be really high in areas where there's so much tourism and just traffic in and out. But again, we don't know that for a fact. So one case that stood out to me was the case of Allison Highwolf. In February of 2015, 25-year-old Allison was found dead in the room of a roadway inn in Hardin, Montana. It was reported that there was a fire in the room that the 25-year-old was found in. According to the coroner's report from the Montana Forensics Department, the manner of death was listed as undetermined, but suggested suicide. 
Can you remind us again what the percentage was you had said about deaths being classified as accidental? Nearly half of the deaths of those autopsied that were found or that were reported missing but found dead were deemed accidental. So 19 of the 42 cases were deemed accidental deaths, which we can assume undetermined is accidental. And so they ruled hers a suicide. Is that what you said? They ruled hers officially as undetermined, but they suggested it was probably a suicide. Okay, that's not confusing at all. That makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, it doesn't. I'll tell you a little bit more about it, but it still isn't going to make sense. Allison's mother, Pauline, spoke of hearing of her daughter's death in an article written by the New York Times. She recalled hearing the knock on her door at 3 a.m. when she opened the door to see a police officer from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. She recalls saying, don't tell me, and as she started backing away from the door. Even though the medical examiner's report said that the cause of death was likely suicide, Paula and the Highwell family suspect foul play. Allison has struggled with substance abuse in her past, but her family did not believe that she would take her own life. She was a mother of four, and her mother is adamant that she would never take her life and leave her children. All of Allison's children lived with Pauline while she was trying to make changes in her life. And Pauline said that she would call the young children every single day. What were their ages? Um, I don't know. Actually, I don't know how old they were. It didn't really say. But if she was 25, they had to be young. I mean, for sure, 10 and under. And it's so sad that a lot of these stories we cover, it is a lot of young mothers. I've, I've noticed that they, you know, they leave behind chi- young children. And that's a traumatic experience in itself. Yeah. You hardly ever hear of them having like older kids, you know? They're always so young. It's so sad. Yeah. Pauline described her daughter as humble and loving and entirely forgiving, no matter what anyone did to her. She said that she would see people making fun of people with addictions while on the street, and she would get mad and say, Don't laugh at them. Don't make fun of them. What if it's one of us? When Pauline went through Allison's belongings after her death, she found letters that she had written to her children. Pauline found these letters and said that she just sat there and cried. She said she was a good mother. She loved her kids so much. It was always just her relationships that went bad. The common thread I see in a majority of the stories that we have covered so far is that even in battling addiction or going through really abusive domestic violence situations, these women were either actively working or trying their damnedest to be a good mother to their children. We can talk addiction all day long, and that is another thread we see in a lot of these cases. But the truth is, we're all just a bad day away from going down that road. I mean, what we are seeing here is that these women wanted to be with their kids. They wanted to be a mother to their children. And how many times have we quoted a family saying they would never leave their kids? They would never do that. Yeah, I totally agree. It's We all could be in that situation. You never know. You never know what life's going to throw at you. And to be able to handle, you know, the things that stress you out or the things that you can handle or you can't handle. So we should never judge because you never know when you might be in that situation or a loved one will be in that situation. And, you know, it always seems like they're always such good people too. like you never hear of like anything negative from the families you know they're always like yeah they struggled but they all still say like how good of a person that these women are when Allison's mom saw her body after she was found she noticed that there was a dent on her forehead bruising on her nose and hands and a ring around her neck the postmortem report by the Montana's Department of Justice stated that Allison High Wolf had a prior history of suicide attempts and that, quote, this death may represent a suicide. Okay, she had a dent in her head. Was this something that was reported on earlier? Like, 
when the family went to identify her body? So actually, the officials would not let the family see Allison's body until she was taken to the funeral home. I know you're not, but you've got to be joking. In the article, the mom talks about, Pauline talks about how shocked she was when they pulled back the, basically pulled back the sheet showing them her daughter, that what she looked like. She was so shocked. She took pictures of her dead daughter on her own cell phone to keep as evidence. Oh my gosh. So mind you, she died supposedly in a house fire or a hotel fire. You wouldn't expect that there would be like visible wounds. Yeah. Or a dent. Okay, wait, wait. Back up just for a second. What do you mean hotel fire? I'm so confused here. So if it was a suicide, she started the fire in a hotel room, but she had a dent on her head and visible wounds? I I don't understand. See, I don't really understand either. I, you know, it's really not clear. Let me, we'll get into that a little bit. Hold on. So at the time of her death, Allison was living with her boyfriend, Stephen Ocker, at the Roadaway Inn, which was partially due to the fact that her family did not approve of their relationship. According to a police report, Stephen worked nights, and after investigating, it was learned that the fire started sometime between his departure for work in the late afternoon and the time that Allison was found dead, around midnight. When questioned by police in regards to her death, Allison's boyfriend told officials that he came back home to the motel that night and found the room filled with smoke, but that Allison's body was blocking the door. It's not clear from the reports or articles that I read whether or not he was the one to call the police that night. Okay, so what do we know about the relationship between her and Stephen? Obviously, if the family didn't approve, we could probably assume it wasn't a healthy one. So it really wasn't super clear, but um, from what I read, it seemed like they had a domestic violent relationship, which is partially why the family did not approve of them being together. Not to mention that I think he kind of fueled... um, her substance abuse issues. Gosh, this story just gets sadder and sadder. You know, to know that she was dealing with an abusive partner who was more than likely enabling her addiction. My gosh. But I do have to be honest, I'm still on this whole dent in her head detail you mentioned. Why would they say undetermined, but probably suicide? I mean, so she did this to, she, so she did that to herself and started the fire. And laid down in front of the door. Is this... Yeah, that's what I'm wondering, too. So, I don't know how they're saying it would even be suicide. No. None of it makes sense. Like, are they saying maybe she passed out and then a fire just happened to start? Or maybe she... Like, you you would think if it was, like, a suicide, she would have, like... The cause of death wouldn't be, like, undetermined. You know, it would be, like, an overdose or clear and obvious, like, wounds that cause bleeding or something like that. Well, it goes back to what I was saying. There's like multiple factors here. She either hit her head or it was smoke inhalation or she overdosed or you just, I don't know. I, 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 I can't make sense of this because it doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry. It just, when you, if, if her body was visible and like not burned enough to the point where they notice these wounds, then the only reasonable cause of death for her to die from the fire would be smoke inhalation, right? That would make sense. But would that be suicide? No. That's what I don't understand either. No, it wouldn't. But just like 
Lots of the other cases that we cover, it feels like we've heard this story before. Questionable deaths masked with the conclusion of an unknown cause of death and families pleading for more information. Allison's sister spoke out and said it felt like the police just, quote, put her into the category of just another drunken Indian. Wow. So here's what I don't get. How do we settle for just undetermined with all these additional factors in play? You know, I can't say much to the investigation because, I mean, I wasn't a part of it. But when a family walks away feeling like you were just casting their loved one aside and undermining the severity of their situation because they've had mental health episodes in the past or a history of addiction, I mean, that's not okay. Allison's family is adamant that she fell victim to domestic violence at the hands of her boyfriend and that he was never held accountable. Allison's family has coordinated marches and protests and tried their hardest to keep her name in the forefront, and her mother even hired pro bono lawyers to help. But six years later, the family is still seeking answers and justice. They also believe that Allison was a victim of negligence by the police department as her case was basically like an open and shut case, despite the fact that there's glaring evidence that foul play could have been involved. So they think it's a combination of both domestic violence and lack of attention from law enforcement. You know, I think about Ashley Aldridge and Pepita Redhair and Danielle Brady and the countless other cases we have covered so far where they were in a relationship, a relationship riddled with domestic violence and abuse, and their abuser has never been held accountable. You know, in a lot of cases, they've gotten away with the things that they've done And I just, it breaks my heart because nobody deserves to be abused. Nobody deserves to be murdered. And the fact that the family is so adamant about the level of abuse that occurred in this relationship and feeling like the police failed them, you know, like, what do you do with that? And, and, you know, what we've learned is you're forced to form your own, you know, search parties and marches and social media pages and you do all these things to make sure that your loved one's case doesn't grow cold you know where where do you go from there there's just no justice just like all these stories that you're talking about definitely a trend i mean it feels that way for us but you know it just seems like it's easier like we've always said it's easier just to open it and close it and say it's undetermined, but it was likely their fault. This family continues to keep Allison's name in the media and at the forefront. And actually, the Southern, uh, the Sovereign Bodies Institute has been a really great advocate for the High Wolf family. They've held community vigils. Um, they've helped promote her name. They've coordinated a lot of these things to um, do the vigils. And in 2020, they did one that got a lot of attention. So their efforts, along with the family's efforts, have put enough pressure on local law enforcement officials that now Allison's case is under review. You know, I hope that it has a different outcome. But I also wonder if under review is enough. You know, is it, does that just mean it's under review within the same department that investigated it? So I would be interested to, to see how this one turns out. So this is one that I'm going to try to keep an eye on. Before we close, I want to leave you guys with this lasting image from the New York Times article. It said, quote, on one recent afternoon, Allison Highwolf's four daughters clustered around their grandmother's kitchen table making a decoration for their mother's grave, a depiction of a red dress, a symbol of the missing and murdered indigenous women's movement. 
Allison High Wolf is buried in a parched hilltop cemetery where several generations of her family lie, her grave strung with lights that her family can see from their front window at night. Allison High Wolf deserves justice. Thank you for listening to We Are Resilient. For links to information found for this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at We Are Resilient Podcast. Send us an email at weareresilientpod at gmail.com or visit us at www.war-podcast.com.